pray once more. Father, I thank you that what we just sang is true. You have come. You have died for us in your Son. And you, Lord Jesus, have been risen from the dead. You reign. So now we may come to your word by faith, safe and secure in that. We may come to your word and let it speak to us and let it shine its bright light into our hearts. We may look at whatever it shows us there and act accordingly. We may act because we are safe in your grace. So please do just that. Please commission your spirit now. Please speak in my speaking. Please cause your word to dwell richly within us. Please produce a great fruit that only you can produce, I pray. Amen. Just in case I need it, Taylor, can you bring me that water bottle that's behind you? Thank you. I won't need that. <laughs> Thank you, sir. Well, today's Jesus shows us nothing less than the path, the way to the kingdom. Nothing less than that. This is the way. We are still in Jesus' meal with the Pharisees, as we looked at last week, and um, we, we saw him engage with them in verses 1 through 11. But really, the, the center of Jesus' teaching at this meal is in verses 12 through 14. This is the path of the kingdom. This is the way. But in order to make the path clear, Jesus will show us ditches on, on either side. So the, the first ditch to the left, we, we looked at last week, and we'll look at again today, verses 7 through 11, and the, the ditch on the right is verses 15 through 24. So I'm going to look today at the path, the path to the kingdom first, and then I'm going to return to that left ditch in verses 7 through 11, because as often happens in Scripture, there was more than one thing happening there, and I want us to see that. And then we will finally look at the right ditch at the end. So this is the way. This is not, and this is not. So let's first look at the path in verses 12 through 14. After having taught from the perspective of a guest last week, Jesus turns in verse 12 to his host and teaches him from the perspective of a host. When you throw a fancy meal, don't invite your family, your friends, influential people, because you need to watch Jesus' logic here, because Jesus' logic is fascinating kind of fun and frustrating at the same time. Um, when you throw a fancy meal, don't invite your friends or family and influential people because they might invite you back, and then you would be repaid in this life. Now, it sounds as if Jesus is saying, don't live for reward. But in verse 13, he says, throw the feast, live for reward. Just as with glory, the problem is not the seeking of the reward. Verbs are not right and wrong, usually, in and of themselves. What makes a verb right or wrong is the adverbs and the objects of the verbs. So then, verse 13, throw the big feast. Verse 14, seek blessing, be blessed. But, verse 13, invite those whom you are assured cannot pay you back. Because, verse 14, then you will be blessed. 
then you will be rewarded because they cannot repay you. <laughs> Wait, how does that work? Jesus' logic is fun, fascinating, and frustrating all at the same time. Because, verse 14, in that moment, in the moment you do this, you are already blessed. Because God sees and He remembers. This is a divine passive here. You will be repaid. You will be rewarded because what you do will glorify Him. And so at the resurrection of the just, He will repay you. He will reward you. Not in kind, like men. He will reward you like the gloriously generous God that He actually is. He will reward. He will repay. The greatest question of our lives is not whether we are living for reward, the greatest question of our lives is whose reward are we living for? Everybody lives for reward. The question is, whose reward are you living for? The question is one of faith and hope. Whose generosity do you trust in? Faith. And whose reward do you hope in faith and hope. We can tell whose generosity we are trusting in and whose reward we are hoping in by one telltale sign that we see here in the text, whether or not we live in love. In the case of the Pharisees, their faith in themselves and their hope in other men's generosity led them to cruelly use the man with dropsy back in verse 2 as we saw last week. But Jesus totally flips that over. Jesus' own faith in the, is in, his genero- in the generosity of his Father, and his hope is in that same Father, in his resurrection of himself. And so what is it then to even give his own life away and to heal, let alone heal the man with dropsy? This is the telltale sign. Real agape love is the fruit of faith and hope. Love that gives, expecting nothing in return. Love that unbinds the bound, that heals the sick, that feeds the poor, and that loves our adversaries. Faith. Faith in the generosity of God and the God who is there. Faith, hope, and love. Faith in God, hope in His reward, which begets love to the loveless. This is the path. This is the way. This is why later in the Bible you see faith, hope, and love everywhere in Paul's letters. It's like, it's like everywhere. Um, for example, in 1 Corinthians 13, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love, Paul says. Love is the, the glory of faith and hope. Or th- this is what Paul noticed about the Colossians and what I've noticed about this church. In Colossians 1.4, Paul wrote about the Colossians that he had heard of their faith in Christ Jesus and their love for all the saints. But then he says in verse 5 that he writes this, he writes that their love um, happened because, because of the hope that was laid up for them in heaven. In other words, because of the reward that God was bringing to them at the resurrection of the just. The same thing that Jesus is talking about here. Love is the fruit of faith and hope. Faith and hope. When you are living for reward that will come at the resurrection of the just, the hope laid up for you in heaven, then you will live with a buoyant humility, getting down with the low and loving them and exalting them like the kings that they will be if they share with you in that same hope in this coming reward. 
the glory that God will bring us at the resurrection of the just. Faith, hope, and love. This is the way. So Jesus here in this, in this little parable is telling us nothing less than the shape of the whole Christian life. Faith in God, in His generosity, which begets hope in His coming reward, which begets agape love right now, because if I'm gaining everything, what is it to give my life away now? I lose nothing. I lose nothing. The root of the tree is faith, the trunk is hope, and the fruit is love. Now, what soil then shall the roots of this tree be planted in for faith? It is the hard-packed soil under a little animal trough in Bethlehem. It is the blood-soaked soil at the foot of a gory Roman cross in Jerusalem. And it is the stony, cold soil of an empty tomb. It is Jesus. In the face of Jesus, we see that God's generosity to us knows no bounds. As Paul will say in Romans 8.32, God who has given us His own Son, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? <laughs> when you've already given your Son, you've given everything. You've, you've proved you're generous. <laughs> You've proved all of your promises of, of, of future reward will be yes in Jesus. So, faith in Jesus. He will, Jesus says, at the resurrection of the just, reward us. At the heart of God's generosity to us in Jesus is, is Him making you and me you and me who are so sinful to stand just and righteous before him so that he may give us himself at the end. This is the gift. This is the reward at the end. God to give us himself. And the only way that we may stand righteous and just before him, as if we had always obeyed in every way, not just forgiven, but as if we had always been just all the way through from top to bottom is by standing in the righteousness that we gain through Jesus. And when we have that, we have God, we have the reward. And He will give us Himself in the end through faith in Jesus, who is indeed perfectly righteous. Through Him, God promises to us and proves His promise to us that we might enjoy all that He is Himself forever, just like Jesus will. Just like Jesus will. And, and the, way, the way to this is nothing less and nothing more than faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. This is the way. But in order to make sure we are on this path, we must make sure that we don't confuse the way with the ditch. We need to know the difference between the path and a ditch. So first, the ditch on the left. So we must return again back to verses 1 through 11 because there are two seemingly unrelated themes here that, that intersect, that at first glance seem unrelated but are totally related. The first has to do with envy, as I touched on last week. The reason why the Pharisees wanted to cancel Jesus was because they envied Him. Chapter 13, verse 17, all the people were rejoicing at all the glorious things that were done by Jesus, and this, of course, occurred at the expense of the Pharisees. The people didn't disrespectful, dis, didn't disrespect them. They certainly didn't pay more them, pay them more respect. They just stopped, stopped thinking about them. They just stopped paying them regard. And so the, the Pharisees envied what Jesus now rightfully, justly possessed, the praise of men. They envied that because they themselves pursued glory and reward through their own self-promotion, through their own power, their own self-exaltation. 
So Jesus saw this in chapter 14, verse 7, when he noticed how they chose the places of honor around the table at the meal. And this is why they wanted to trap him and cancel him, because they maliciously wanted what he justly, rightly came to possess. They either wanted to steal it or destroy it. So this is the definition of envy, to desire what someone else has justly, rightly come to possess, and to desire it with malice to steal it or destroy it. To desire what someone else has justly or rightly come to possess and to desire it with malice, to steal it or destroy it. That's why they were willing to use the man with dropsy as bait to lure Jesus into being canceled, to break the, the Sabbath rules into being canceled because of envy. Now, here is where we come to an intersection of another theme that at first seems unrelated. And before I tell you what it is, let me set the stage. You remember how this healing of the man with dropsy was almost a mirror image of the healing of the woman who was bent over in the synagogue in chapter 13. On the Sabbath, Jesus heals, confrontation with the authorities over the Sabbath. Jesus refutes them using the very same logic. If your son falls in a well on the Sabbath, you can wait till Monday to pull him out. No, you're not going to do that, you hypocrites. Same, almost mirror image uh, situations. And here is where this gets interesting. This is, by my count, the 11th time in Luke where he has paired uh, two witnesses to important events in Jesus' life and where those two witnesses have been a man and a woman. A man and a woman. 11 times now, and by my count, he will do it again six more times. 17 times he does this in his letter, almost once a chapter. And I think Luke does this for two reasons. One, he's an historian, and by ancient standards, in order to prove that something actually happened, you needed the witness of two witnesses. Luke is just a good historian. But why a man and a woman? Because the woman part was not required in those days. In fact, it was kind of a liability for a woman to be the witness. Um, why a woman? 17 times. Um, and here, here is what I think Luke is doing. I think he's being very intentional. He is honoring the other half of the image of God. You remember in Genesis that it says that God made man in his image, his icon, male and female. He made his image, male and female. And what it's one icon, but two parts. So, so Luke here throughout his book is expressing the full weight, the full value of the female part of that icon in his habit, this habit of calling to the stand female witnesses. Women are of equal value to men, always have been, always have been. Women are not the same as men. Women are different from men. That too is true from Genesis. Adam is created first and Eve is created from Adam. But when Adam looks on the final product of Eve, he praises God for his creation. While she came from me, she is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She's just like me, only beautiful. She's glorious. My goodness, God. Whew. This is why Paul can say later in 1 Corinthians 11 that the man is the head of the woman, but the woman is the glory of man. Because there's a beautiful fittedness between the two. He was made first, he leads, but she's the glory and the beauty. He leads the dance, but as he leads the dance, he features her. She's the glory of the dance. Um, 
He leads the dance, but as he leads, the, the whole point is to feature her beauty and her glory that God arrayed her in. Okay, so, so you're asking the question, okay, how do these two intersect? Envy and, and women. And, and they intersect this way. And, and I could connect envy to any other number of isms in our world today because envy drives and corrupts so much. It's behind Black Lives Matter's philosophy. It's behind communism. It's behind confiscatory taxation. I, I, I could connect this to any number of issues. It, but, I, but I address this issue here because it comes up again and again and again, and it comes up here in the text, this pairing of men and women. And, and it's this, that there's so much of what we call feminism today that is simply envy on gender-constructed wheels. It's just envy on gender-constructed wheels. It is women envying men for what God rightly, justly gave men. And it ruins the dance. It ruins the dance. The glory is put out. It's squelched. Because when the person who is being featured in the dance envies the one who is leading, she, by necessity, must leave the place of glory in order to get what she envies. So now there is no longer anyone in the place of glory, and now there is no dance. We, we, we call it a dance, but it's no dance. Feminism is women envying men, women relating to men with malice for what men rightly possess from God. Now, the malice from women to men, I think many people see, but what surprises many is to find out that it's women hating women too. It's a denial of women relating with malice towards women because it's a denial and a dismissing of all of the beauty and the glory and the value and the wonder that God gave to womanhood alone that he didn't give to men. And then the whole thing is ruined because as it turns out, feminism turns first-rate women into third-rate men and vice versa. When men try to be like women, the protruding jaw lines and the more aggressive nature always gives us away. And so does the, all the records we break in women's sports. And our society trains us to think this way. We are constantly trained and raised up to live in this envy. We are raised this way. We're trained this way to despise our nature and to maliciously desire what was given to the opposite gender in the chair next to us. Just as the culture of the Pharisees trained them to live in jostling envy of each other. And the result in our culture is just like at the meal, the cruel using of other people. We even encourage people to permanently mutilate themselves to support our system of envy. The high priests and priestesses of envy do not want to have kids themselves, but they train school guidance counselors and administrators to encourage students who are still forming their identities to mutilate their genitalia, to use their students to further their own cause that is at its heart all about envy. So I've heard it said that if you disobey the first and the last commandments, you'll disobey the other eight. And I think that's about right. When you give up the worship of God and you give in to covetousness, to envy, you, you will leave the beautiful, glorious place that, that God assigned to you, that God gave you, that good, and you'll end up treating people coldly and cruelly six ways to Sunday. This is a, this is a deep, dark ditch. And the only way out of, of either ditch is through faith, hope, and love. And this faith, this hope, and this love, however, it'll look different depending on which side of the path you're coming from. So if, if, 
if the path that we must come from is repenting of living of, of envy, living by envy of the other gender, and therefore by living by hating and repudiating our God-given design, what repentance will look like, what faith, hope, and love will look like on the outside is something like submission, a dirty word in our culture, submission, but not first to a man, to God, to God. It will look like trusting the goodness of God in His design. And in this sense, it, it will look very much like loving yourself because in a way you are, because you've been made, I say, especially to all women here, you have been made with a glory that God just simply didn't give men. <laughs> That's true. I mean, just think about... Sorry, sorry slightly crass, but just think about the contributions that men and women make to the production of another human life. Men get like 10 minutes. <laughs> that's the crass part, sorry. But, but that's true. There is a glory bestowed upon women that is, it's glory. It's glory. It truly is. So it, it begins, it, it looks like trusting the goodness of God in His design, loving yourself, loving yourself by faith in the designer and the creator of yourself, and in the generosity, the generosity to the world that this designer and creator used when He designed yourself, because He did. He did. So it will look like trusting in the generosity of God in His design, that He is generous to the world, that He's generous to the world through both genders. This is one of the great lies of our time, is that the world is constructed as a zero-sum game, that there is only a finite number of pieces to the pie. So if God gives someone else something in the chair next to me different than what He's given to me, that means that that's less for me. That equals it, that it's less, just a total lie. Because this God is so generous that He constructed the very design of the world such that when He blesses someone in the chair next to you, that doesn't mean less for you. In fact, that actually means more for you. That actually means more for you. When God blesses one person, He blesses the whole world, the pie gets bigger. God's endowing men with certain roles and traits does not, by definition, denigrate women. We've been trained to think so. But in fact, by God's design, it's the opposite. The more men become men, the more women are featured in glory in the dance. There's a, there's a beautiful fittedness together in God's design. So the way of escape here from this envy-driven madness is by faith, hope, and love. Faith in the generosity of God. Hope, not in a reward now, but in one to come. Glory, not now, but in glory to come. Reward, not now, but reward to come. A reward that comes from living in love to the world through the design that God gave you. God means to love the world through the design that He gave you. Not by living for yourself, but for others, believing that in God's generosity to you in Christ, you're not losing a thing by giving yourself away. Because the reward that's coming is infinite which he proved on the cross. 
So this is the way, this is the path for women and for men, and for men. So now we come to the, the other side of this and the, the other ditch. And it is at this point in verse 15 in the text that some guy around the table gives Jesus a holy harumph. You know, I picture this guy holding bread in his hand and, and saying, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom, harumph. No. The man presumes that he's one foot in the kingdom already. And so Jesus tells a story. A man once gave a great banquet, verse 16, and he invited many. And when all the preparations were finished and the mutton was hot, he sent out messengers. Time to eat. The amazing thing, the sad thing, is that each person, beginning at verse 18, declined. Each person. And the reasons are what we need to pay close attention to. The first, verse 18, is concerned about work. The second, verse 19, is concerned about his possessions, his five yoke of oxen. And the third, verse 20, just married. He's concerned about family, work, possessions, and family. So note, these are not frivolous excuses. These are good things. These are good things. These are, in fact, what a man needs to attend to, work, possessions, and family. We kind of say this, like, if you don't, you're not like a real man. And they keep him, each one, from answering the call to the feast. So the master who has prepared this lavish banquet, he becomes angry and he expands his call into the whole city, verse 21. And the same people as in the previous parable are invited, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. This still doesn't fill up the room, verse 22. So the master extends the call to everywhere, verse 23, compelling people, not by force, but by persuasion, don't miss out. Don't miss out on the lavishness, the lavish reward and blessing of this banquet given by grace, given by the generosity of the master. Don't miss out on it. Because, verse 23, this is how the master glorifies himself as the giver of the banquet, by being so doggone generous. But sadly, verse 24, those who presumed to be able to come whenever they wanted and were distracted by work, possessions, and family, the invitation is not extended forever. Their place is taken by those who actually accepted the invitation, who acted on it. Ironically, in their pursuit of life, they lost out on life. In this parable and in this life, this is the only thing that matters, whether you accept the invitation or not. This parable describes what may be the greater danger for many of us. It is very possible to find yourself throwing grenades and pointing at the left ditch and all the while never realize that you're not standing on the path when you do this. You're standing in the right ditch. It is an easy temptation to presume to be just and therefore to be present at the resurrection of the just, verse 14, because you're not like those perverted leftists over there. You attend to the things that civilization is built upon, hard work, private property, and a strong family. And this temptation is so strong because these are the fruits of Christianity in every culture. Wherever the gospel has taken root, because we have faith in the generosity of God, we work hard. 
and this grows our possessions and our standard of living, and the culture is blessed, and all of this supports and is undergirded by a strong family, throughout history, in every culture, this is what the gospel has done. In every culture. But, but, it is so easy to enjoy the fruits of the kingdom, work, possessions, and family, without regard to the giver of the fruits. To make a good thing a God thing. And as, as it has been said, when you make a good thing a God thing, you make it into a very bad thing. We love, we are so tempted to love the fruits, but in a way that they are disembodied from the tree. We make them into idols. We make little g gods out of the fruit of God's tree. This does not mean that we should not fight to build them up and protect them. But what it actually means is that we didn't love them enough in the first place. We're complaining about the bricks and the fire being thrown at the very things that we did not have enough love to protect in the first place. This is an irony of the kingdom that when you love something else besides God as God, even really good things, you will spend that thing for yourself and your love will shrink, you will shrink, and your world will shrink. But when you treasure God as God, like the Grinch, your heart will grow three sizes. And you will have enough love to not only protect God's gifts to the world, but expand and to grow them, to be a means by which the pie grows. You will become a giver. The pie grows through faith, hope, and love in God. To put this another way, the only thing that matters about us is what we do with the invitation from the, ma- from the master. Everything else is downstream from this question. Every other blessing, every other blessing. You can't have the fruit without the tree. God's system is gloriously good only when God is worshiped at the center of it because God is the reward. God is the reason why there is any blessing in the system. God is the reason. It is His infinite generosity that, that, is, that makes it true that the pie grows because, because it, it, it is, a, it is a, an outworking it, a shining of His character, of His infinitely generous character, of who He is. And it turns out that we are all the poor, the crippled, the the lame, and the blind before Him anyway. We are all in need of Him. The blessing only comes because He's the God of the system, a God of infinite generosity who proves that generosity in His Son to save us. And He does not want us to be shortchanged. He does not want us to be shortchanged by just seeking blessing in the here and now. But this is what the Spirit of the age wants of you, especially you men, to be good, compliant tools in the system, to be distracted and lost in the blind pursuit of work, possessions, and family. To put it real practically, to literally skip church because of one of those. After all, that that keeps the taxes coming in. That keeps the economy going. That keeps the social services expenditures down. But that also means that you must think and do what the spirit of the age tells you to do. In other words, as as C.S. Lewis put it, to be men without chests, men with brains and guts, but no heart. No heart to know what to love and to hate. No affections. Men for whom courage and sacrifice and risk is just something you read about in books. But again, the the lie works because there's truth in it. We are lured with the fruit of our own tree, just like the serpent in the garden. 
So repentance from this ditch will still run along the lines of faith, hope, and love. It must begin with faith and worship of God and hope in His reward that He will bring. Only then will we be men of love, of self-giving, agape love. But for us, it will look a lot less like submission and more like its opposite. It'll look like rebellion. As we talked about yesterday at the men's breakfast, not against God, not rebellion against God, but against the spirit of the age that wants to make you good little tools. Rebellion against the ethos you thought you were taught at State U. Rebellion against the indoctrination sessions your employer puts you through. Rebellion against being co-opted by a news organization or a political party. But I repeat myself. When you climb out of the ditch and onto the path, you'll still have plenty to learn about, about faith, hope, and love. That's why it's called a path. You still have plenty to learn. But it will feel like freedom in that moment. Freedom from the conforming spirit of the age to love, to give yourself away, to use your strength and your power, not, not to surrender them out of guilt, but out of freedom from guilt, to use your strength and your power to heal the weakest among this city, to heal and, and, and gird up and unbind those who are lost and those who are afraid and those who are sick and those who are wandering and outgrowth to make this city a refuge, a refuge for the oldest and for the youngest in the womb. Your lives will have been spent and meant for something. You will not be popular, but you will be useful in the eyes of God. And in the end, you will be rewarded beyond your wildest dreams. Not, a, not in kind according to what you did, but in according to the infinite generosity of this God who displayed that generosity on the cross giving His Son. That's what awaits you, men. That's what awaits you, women. That's what awaits you by trusting in the generosity of God in your design and embracing it and loving the world with it. By that means, you will be generous to the world because it'll be God working through you, as He always meant to do. As He always meant to do. This is the path, this is the way. It's a path of freedom. It's a path of adventure. It's a path of glory. It's a path of beauty. It's a path of blood. It's a path of humility. But it is a path of buoyant humility that goes down to go up, and it does go up. <laughs> and it will one day go up, the resurrection of the just. So let me pray for that day to come soon. <clears throat> So, Father, we look forward to that day, and I, as soon as I say that, I know how cold my heart is sometimes to that day. I confess myself how distracted I can be. As a pastor, I, I confess that I may be distracted by your things and not have sufficient time to simply sit with you and talk with you, plead with you, pray to you. So I, I pray that you would start with me, that you would, you would turn us all out of, up out of the ditch and free us, free us from envy, free us from being conformed to the spirit of the age, free us to faith, 
faith in your generosity. Free us to hope, hope in the reward that you bring. Free us to love. Free us to to be people who love the world as you have loved us in your Son. Let us be but a dim approximation of that. And for that, you will reward us infinitely by your grace. I thank you. I thank you that you're the God who's there. I thank you that you are this generous, this good, this full of love to us. So it is to the praise of your name that I pray. Amen.